All right, good morning. Please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at just three verses this morning, 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. And as you're turning there, please remember that these words come from him whose name was Wonderful, Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Mighty God, and the Prince of Peace. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we are gathered here on this Christmas morning, help us to hear those most blessed words afresh. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Help us to hear the words of the Savior this morning. Speak to us by the power and conviction and comfort of your Holy Spirit. For in your Son's name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. I don't remember if I ever attended um, Lord's Day on a Christmas morning as a young child, but I imagine, boys and girls, for those of you who have not yet opened your presents, you are chomping at the bit to get home and to tear into those treasures. And I would just offer to you that the giving and receiving of gifts on Christmas Day is indeed a great gift from God that we have seasons of feasting and fasting, and today is certainly a day of great feasting. But I would bet, children, that most of you cannot remember what you got last year. But I'm even more certain that you can't remember what you got five years ago. See, the Christmas presents that we often give and receive, they have an expiration date on them, they wear out, they break, and we either give them away or we throw them away. Rarely do we have gifts that last a lifetime, but this morning we get to unwrap a present that will last ages without It will never wear out. It will never be forgotten. It is a gift that surpasses knowledge. And it's the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, consider carefully why God sent his son into the world. Let's start with why he didn't send his son. God did not send his son into the world because he needed something from us. Apostle Paul said that uh, God is not... 
uh, in need of us, that he does not live in temples made with human hands, nor is he served by men as if he needed anything, since he himself gave to all men life and breath and all things. Uh, Neither did God send his son into the world so that we could serve him, though being the king of kings, we will serve him. But Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says that the son of man came not to be served. Perhaps God sent his son into the world to gather up all the good people to himself. Well, that's absolutely not true. Psalm 14 says that God looked down from heaven on the children of man to see if there were any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Well, then perhaps in light of that, God sent down his son into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world. But that's not why God sent his son either. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why then did God send his son into the world? Our text tells us. This is a true, trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Beloved, that is what Christmas is all about, that God sent his son into the world to save the worst of men and the worst of women and the worst of children. So let's get to it. Our big idea this morning is Christmas is the story of Jesus coming into the world to save the most despicable of men. Titled our message this morning for you children, Despicable me. So let's see how despicable we are this morning. Let's look at our doctrine first of all. Our passage begins in verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now in Paul's writings, there are five of these trustworthy sayings. They are concise summaries of vital biblical truths. And here we have the briefest summary of why Christmas exists. But don't miss uh, these adjectives. He says this is a trustworthy saying, meaning it's a saying that can be fully uh, relied on. It's a true truth. It can never be untruth. And furthermore, it is deserving of full acceptance, meaning you ought to believe it. You ought to receive it. You ought to gobble it up into your soul as a hungry man gobbles bread. So what is this trustworthy saying? Well, Paul continues at the end of verse 15. Christ Jesus, that's very God of very God, came into the world. How did he come into the world? He was made man by the conceiving of the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, of whom I am the protos sinner, the First in rank sinner, the chief sinner, is what Paul says. So here's the question. Did Paul have grounds to call himself the chief of sinners? And yes, he did. Let's quickly go through five proofs showing that Paul is the chief sinner. First of all, proof number one, Paul belonged to the most wicked party. Perhaps you don't know much about the Bible, but certainly you've heard the word Pharisee. 
Pharisee is a religious party in the first century that had Jesus' greatest scorn. In Matthew chapter 23, he gave seven woes against the Pharisees. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Seven times he said that, which signifies the completion or the perfection of how corrupt and abominable they were. Paul belonged to that party. Philippians 3, 5, he says, I was a Pharisee. So he belonged to the most wicked group of men on earth. Proof number two, Paul belonged to the most wicked city. Paul belonged to the most wicked city. Though Paul was born in Tarsus, he was a Jerusalem man. Uh, and Jerusalem at this time was the most wicked city on earth. No city has ever matched its wickedness, not even any city that you can think of today. Um, it had become a slaughterhouse for God's people, Jesus said, Matthew 23, 34. They opposed all of mankind, preventing the gospel to be preached to the nations, 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. And they murdered the author of life himself. Acts chapter 3, verse 14. So there's never been a more wicked city, nor will there ever be, than Jerusalem. And Paul was a proud Jerusalem man. Proof number three, Paul belonged to the most wicked generation. Do you think that our generation is wicked? Um, his generation was the most wicked generation. Um, historian, uh, sorry, Jesus said, uh, of that generation, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That generation was punished in 70 AD and Jesus said that that punishment has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be, Matthew 24, 21. Paul belonged to that generation, the most wicked generation. Proof number four, Paul, before he was converted, he hated Jesus Christ. Um, historian Philip Schaff says here, uh, with his Pharisaic education, he regarded Jesus of Nazareth like his teachers as a false messiah, a rebel, a blasphemer who was justly condemned to death. So if Paul would have been in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified, he would have cast his vote to let Barabbas, the murderer, go free, and Christ be crucified. And then proof number five, Paul was a Christian killer. He held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. He uh, was pleased with his execution, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. He got letters from the high priest to go to synagogues and arrest anyone who named the name of Christ, Acts chapter 9, verse 2. He cast his vote. Uh, with those who condemn Christians to death, Acts chapter 26, verse 10, and he raged in foreign cities to arrest any Christian that he could find, Acts chapter 26, verse 11. He was public enemy number one of the church in the first century. So in sum, Paul belonged to the most wicked party, the most wicked city, the most wicked generation. He hated Christ, and he killed his church he was the foremost, the chief, the most wicked, greatest sinner. And yet, Christ saved him. 
Jesus saved the worst man in the first century. That brings us then to our doctrine this morning that Christmas is the story of Jesus coming into the world to save the most despicable of men. Doesn't he save general sinners, ordinary sinners, moderate sinners, small sinners? Yes, but our text especially says that Christ came into the world to save the foremost sinners. The most despicable type of people that you can imagine. Why? Why is that? Well, consider with me five reasons that Jesus does this. Reason number one, because the most despicable men are the men that are in most need of saving. The most despicable men are the men in most need of saving. Children, if you were to go to the hospital and witness what happens in the emergency room and a man comes in with a broken arm and a child gets rolled in on one of those gurneys who got hit by a car, which person should be helped by the doctors first? The child, right? The child's in more need. He, he's, a, he's, in a, he's in a worse position. We, we know that. We know that the one is in, who is in most need gets the most help. This is hardwired into us. Uh, where did that impulse come from? It came from Christ. Uh, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And immediately, one of you might say to me, well, okay, but that analogy of the hospital, it doesn't work because all sins are essentially the same. Is that true? Are all sins essentially the same? No. No. Uh, they're not. Uh, shorter Catechism, question 83, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Answer, some sins in themselves and by reason of sev several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. I mean, a, a child who is five who is a sinner from birth versus a, a man who is 75, which one's the greater sinner? By number of sheer sins alone. Uh, Jesus taught um, that some sinners are worse than others as well. Uh, he, when he spoke to Capernaum, he said that they, would, they were worse sinners than the sinners of Sodom and that they would be punished more severely, Matthew eleven twenty three and 24. But you, you might say to me, well, but every sinner needs saving, uh, not just the despicable ones, but lesser sinners as well. And I 100% agree. Every sinner needs saving. Um, even the smallest sin, the, the, the tiniest sin deserves the wrath of God. Um, but Christ Jesus in our passage, he comes especially to save those under the greatest wrath. Consider just a sampling from scripture of God saving the most despicable of sinners. John Bunyan gives us help here. He says, here is Adam, the destroyer of the world. Here is Lot, that lay with both his daughters. Here is Abraham that was once an idolater, and Jacob a supplanter. Judah that lay with his daughter-in-law. Aaron that made an idol to be worshipped by Israel. 
Here also is Rahab the harlot, Solomon the great backslider, Manasseh the man of blood and a witch, Paul the persecutor, and many thousands more. The Bible is full of such despicable sinners. That's the first reason that Jesus came to save the most despicable sinners because they stand in the greatest need. Reason number two. Jesus came to save the most despicable sinners because he wants to display his perfect patience. Please look with me at verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus might display his perfect Patience. For those of you who are here for the First Corinthians uh, 13 messages, you remember that that word patience was uh, built off of, of two parts. Uh, the first part meaning uh, long and the second part meaning temper or long-tempered. In Hebrew, uh, it means to be long-nostrilled. Uh, the idea of that is if you're short-nostrilled, then when you get angry and your blood starts to boil, the air doesn't have very much time to get out the nose before, you know, it's still hot. So to be long-nostrilled is, to, you know, the air has a little bit more time to get through, cool down. Jesus wants to display his long-suffering. His long-temperedness. And he does this especially by saving the worst type of sinners. Why would Jesus ever save the likes of Paul? Paul murdered his members from his own family, the church. Paul was an insolent opponent, a blasphemer, a persecutor. I mean, had Paul did these things to you and you had the power to punish them, uh, would you have not ended him? If a despicable neighbor had come and defiled your marriage bed, soiled your reputation, stolen your goods, would you have been patient with such a person? But Christ displays the height and breadth and length and depth of his patient love, a love that surpasses knowledge, a, a love that eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man in saving this despicable sinner. That's the second reason. So that his perfect patience can be on display. The third reason Jesus came to save despicable sinners is because it gives courage to other sinners to come to Christ. It gives courage to other sinners to come to Christ. Look at the end of verse 16, who does Jesus want to show this patience to? Halfway through verse 16, it is an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Think how discouraging the Bible would be is if we only had a record of Christ saving moderate, middle of the road, ordinary sinners. But we have a record of Christ saving the most despicable. Christ saved the Corinthian man 
who was guilty of incest so that those guilty of the grossest sexual sins could find hope. Christ saved King David, the murderer, so that murderers could look up to the Son of Man and find forgiveness. Christ saved the thief on the cross so that those who are on death row awaiting execution could find hope and light to come to Christ. Christ saved Mary Magdalene of demon possession so that even demon worshipers could find hope and an open door to come to Jesus. That's the third reason that Christ saves the most despicable because it gives courage to great sinners to come in. The fourth reason Christ saves the most despicable is because Christians gather supernatural strength from it. Christians gather supernatural strength from it. The end of verse 16 doesn't deal only with those who have not yet come to Christ, but it also deals with those who are already saved. Uh, Christ saving the most despicable sinners is, end of verse 16, an example to those who were, who will believe, who are believing in him. Meaning that when Christians see Christ saving the most vile and despicable of men and women, it gives them renewed strength. It, it gives them spiritual adrenaline. When Peter denied Christ, Jesus forgave him, but, but Jesus told him something very important before it even happened. He said in Luke twenty two thirty two, 32, he says, when you have turned again after your denial, strengthen your brother's. What would Peter strengthen his brothers with? With the knowledge that though he had been such a notorious sinner for his cowardice and his denial, that Christ still forgave him, and that knowledge would strengthen the disciples. This especially happens if you're saved as a young child. Many of us have had the wonderful privilege of growing up in Christian homes. And we were saved when we were only moderate sinners. That wasn't me, by the way. I'm not including myself in being a moderate sinner. Children, boys and girls, no doubt, those of you especially who have closed with the Lord Jesus Christ, you know you're a sinner. You experience sin, you taste sin, you, you hear sin. Um, but as you get older, it's like a megaphone is turned up and you will see your pride more clearly, your lust more clearly, your greed more clearly, your selfishness more clearly, your cold, loveless hearts more clearly. It'll be, it'll be so overwhelming. And one of the greatest medicines that God will give you is that he will bring in a notorious sinner, one that is so bad you wouldn't even touch with a 10-foot stick and he will save that person and you will look and you will see, wait a second, if Christ saves wicked sinners like that, then I know he still loves me. He still loves me, though I've sinned against him. He loves me still. That's the fourth reason that Christ saves the most despicable is because it gives supernatural strength to 
Christians. And then reason number five, because it brings the most glory to God. It brings the most glory to God. Look at how our passage ends with this doxology in verse 17. Paul can't even uh, lay down this wonderful doctrine without erupting into spontaneous praise. Verse 17 To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, Christ saving the worst of men reveals that there is no one like our God. Micah chapter 7 verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. The first part of the sentence, who is a God like you? There's no one like you. No one's heard about you. Who does this? When news of Paul's conversion hit the Christian churches in Judea, they were compelled to give glory to God. In Galatians 1, 23 and 24, Paul says, They were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. They praised God because there was no explanation for this Hitler of the first century turning to be not only a Christian, but the apostle to the Gentiles. The only thing they could do was praise God. There was no other explanation for Paul's conversion than the free grace of God. Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So in summary, Christ doesn't haphazardly or accidentally save the most despicable. He has particular reasons for it. Five reasons. One, because they are the most in need. Two, because it displays his perfect patience. Three, because it gives courage to other sinners to come. Four, because it gives supernatural strength to Christians. And five, because it brings the most glory to God. That's our doctrine, that Christmas is the story of Jesus coming into the world to save the most despicable of men. So let's look then, secondly, at our duty. And our first duty is to think carefully about sin. Specifically, how sin can be great in comparison versus great in conviction. How sin can be great in comparison versus sin being great in conviction. In our text, Paul says he's the foremost sinner, the greatest sinner. By what? By comparison. I know that word is not in there, but it's implied. When Paul's sin is compared to other sinners, he's the greatest sinner. He belonged to the most wicked party, the Pharisees, the most wicked city, Jerusalem, the most wicked generation, 70 AD. He hated Christ. He killed Christians. So get this, all sinners, all men are sinners, but some sinners have comparatively more blotches than others. 
while others have comparatively fewer. Not everyone is a Paul. Okay? So that's thinking about sin in comparison. Now let's think about sin with the greatness of conviction. It's vital that when it comes to our conviction of sin, whether we have comparatively many sins or comparatively few sins, that we have a great conviction of it. Do you realize that there will be many despicable sinners in heaven? And there will be many moderate sinners who face the judgment. This is the gospel, dear congregation. You've heard it said like this before. That Christ Jesus loved you so much that if you were the only sinner on earth, he would have still came and died for you. That is 100% true. Hallelujah. But don't miss the point. If you were the only sinner on earth, and if you only committed but one sin, and it was the smallest of sins, he would still have to die for you. That brings us then to our second duty. We must examine ourselves this morning. Are you sensible? Are you conscious? Are you convicted of of even the smallest sins that you have? King David gives us an example of how even small sins should smite our conscience. When he was hiding from King Saul, he was in the cave, and uh, King Saul was doing something, and they're going to the bathroom or taking a nap or something, uh, and, and, King da- and David went up to him, and he didn't kill him. He didn't pour out violence upon him, but he, he cut out a little corner of his robe. And then David was later s- struck in his heart, it, it, the Bible says, because he, t- he cut off the robe of the king. He, he, in other words, he, he stretched out his hand against the Lord's anointed. 1 Samuel 24, 5, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He was sensible of his small sins. Uh, Dear congregation, are you sensible of your small sins? Do you see your own sin? No matter how small it may be comparatively to others, do you see that as despicable? Why is that important to see that? Why is that important to to be sensible of even our smallest sins? Oh, small sinner. Don't you know that it was one sin? One sin of Adam, disobedience, that that ruined the world. It was one sin of pride that cast all of the fallen angels out of heaven. It was one sin of anger that prevented Moses from entering the promised land. It was one sin of lying that cost Ananias and Sapphira their lives. Small sinner indeed. What what are the small sins that you have committed? We must follow Paul's example here. Uh, Notice that Paul is not focusing on the sins of other people. He's thinking about his own particular sins. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an opponent. So think about your particular sins. Don't think about your neighbor's sins. Think about your own heart. Feel feel those wrongs that you have done. 
You have particular evils that you have committed against God and neighbor. What would have happened to you if Christmas never came? brings us then to our third duty. We must celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus did come. Jesus did come. Our passage says this is a trustworthy saying, fully, uh, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Beloved, the, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace came into the world not to be served, but to serve you and to give his life as a ransom for you. The fullness of the deity became a baby in the manger. The eternal God entered into time. The judge of the universe came to be judged for your sins. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Loved ones, praise God for Christmas morning. The greatest morning. The, the morning that started the, the whole row of dominoes that, that ended up with Christ on the cross, Christ risen from the dead, Christ ascending into heaven, Christ interceding for us at the right hand of God for you, for a despicable sinner like you or for an ordinary moderate sinner. Every present, children, that you are going to open today, or that perhaps you've already opened, is the smallest echo, the smallest shadow of the unspeakable gift that God has given you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus did not come into the world to give us silver or gold, or to give us estates, or to give us success, or to give us health and wealth and blah, blah, blah. He came into the world to forgive your sins. He came into the world to give you a peace that passes all understanding, a peace with God. He came into the world to give you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He came into the world to bring you back to God. It's the greatest rescue mission ever conceived. These are the things that the angels long to look into. And that brings us then to our fourth duty, which is to argue with ourselves. We need to argue with ourselves. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're, you're saying to yourself, yeah, but I am a, I'm too great of a sinner for Christ to save me. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you think that it's too late for you, that you've ignored God for too long, that your heart is too hard, that you've mocked God, that you've made too big of a mess of your life. So then let me ask you, do all of these things make you a great sinner? Yes, they do. And that means that you are most fit for Jesus Christ. You are most fit for him. Here are some questions for you. Are you weary of your sins? Are you sick of your sins? 
Do you wish to be delivered from them? Will you then with all of your heart come to Christ Jesus then and be saved? See, it's not the mountain of sins that prevents you from Jesus showing his mercy. It's you not coming to him. You not closing with him. You not calling out to him. You not relying on him. You not trusting in him. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Come to Christ. Let's look finally at our, at our delight this morning. I actually believe that this passage is probably the greatest comfort uh, when it comes to our continual fight against sin. What do you do as a Christian when you find hypocrisy in your heart? What do you do when you find that you've done the things that you hate? What do you do when you look into the mirror in the morning and you see an ugly soul? What do you do when Satan accuses you and you agree with him that he's right? You come to this passage. You take a hold of yourself. And you say this to yourself. I am the foremost sinner. That charge is true. I cannot deny it. I am impure like Lot, unfaithful like the woman at the well, prone to darkness like Magdalene, a coward and a denier like Peter, a maker of idols like Aaron. I am in the rank of the greatest sinners. Will Jesus Christ reject me? No. Great sinners is why he came into the world. Great sinners like me is why he came into the world. I am safe in his hands. I can trust him. So, beloved, I have two charges um, for you this Christmas morning. And the first charge is this. Since Christ has saved you, the foremost of sinners, then go tell it on the mountain. Go tell other sinners, great sinners, notorious sinners, that they can be saved, that they can be forgiven, that their mountain of sins can be swallowed up in the sea of forgetfulness. That's our duty. If Christ Jesus came to save the greatest of sinners, then we have an obligation to go and tell great sinners that mercy awaits them. Let us not be those who keep the good news of Christmas to ourselves. So start praying. I, I mean, this is a great time to start um, setting those things that you do for the beginning of the year. Resolutions, yes, resolutions. Uh, start, make a resolution. Start praying. Lord, give me opportunity to share the good news with the worst of sinners. Give me opportunity to open my mouth. Give me courage to speak and tell the truth. Give me a heart that Christ has that would have pity and compassion on those who are most in need. Give me knowledge that I would not be repulsed by them, but that I would see as in them a mirror. Christ being the only difference. And our second charge is this. 
give glory to God. Give glory to God. That's how our passage ends. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God sent his son into the world, not that we could repay him with anything, but that we could praise him. So praise him. Praise him in your homes. Praise him in your bed. Praise him in your work. Uh, Praise him when you're out. Praise him when you're here. Let your life be a megaphone for praise in everything. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this unspeakable gift. Christ Jesus, we thank you for this unspeakable gift, Holy Spirit, for this unspeakable gift that you conspired in heaven to save the most despicable, most pitiful, most wicked sinners and such as are we. We thank you that there's hope in the one that was born on Christmas morning the Savior of the world. We pray for those, Lord, who have not yet received him, who have not yet trusted in him, that you would take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, open up their eyes to behold wondrous things, help them to see the hope to which they can be called to in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please bless us as we go on our way. In Jesus' name, amen.